Chapter 78 Taboo Trade-Offs Prelude Cheating It was Saturday, on the 4th of April, in the year 1992. Mr. and Mrs. Davis looked rather nervous as they sat in a certain special section of the Hogwarts Quidditch stands. Though today the cushioned benches did not look upon flying broomsticks, but rather viewed a gigantic square of something like parchment. A great white blankness, soon to flicker with windows into grass and soldiers. For now, it showed only the reflected dull grey colour of the surrounding overcast skies, looking rather stormy, though the weather wizards had promised that the rain wouldn't break before nightfall. Ordinarily, it was the ancient tradition of Hogwarts that mere parents were to stay out, for much the same reason that impatient children are told to get out of the kitchen and not meddle in the cook's affairs. The only reason for a parent-teacher conference was if a teacher felt that a parent wasn't shaping up properly. It took an exceptional circumstance to make the Hogwarts administration feel that it had to justify itself to you. On any given occasion, generally speaking, the Hogwarts administration was backed up by 800 years of distinguished history, and you were not. Thus, it had been with some trepidation that Mr. and Mrs. Davis had insisted on an audience with Deputy Headmistress McGonagall. It was hard to muster a proper sense of indignation when you were confronting the same dignified witch who, twelve years and four months earlier, had given both of you two weeks' detention after catching you in the act of conceiving Tracy. On the other hand, Mr. and Mrs. Davis's courage had been helped by angrily waving about a copy of The Quibbler, whose headline showed in bright bold text for all the world to see, Pacts with Potter, Bones Davis Granger in Love Rectangle of Fear. And so, Mr. and Mrs. Davis had argued their way into the faculty box of the Hogwarts Quidditch stands, where they were now ensconced with an excellent view of Professor Quirrell's enchanted screens, so that the two of them could see for themselves... Just what the fiddly snarks has been going on in this school, if you'll pardon the expression, Deputy Headmistress McGonagall. Seated to the left of Mr. Davis was another concerned parent, a white-haired man in elegant black robes of unmatchable quality, one Lucius Malfoy, a political leader of the strongest faction of the Wizengamot. To the left of Lord Malfoy, a sneeringly aristocratic man with a scarred face who had been introduced to them as Lord Jugson. Then, an elderly but sharp-eyed fellow named Charles Knott, rumoured to be nearly as wealthy as Lord Malfoy, seated on Lord Jugson's left. On the right of Mrs. Davis, one would find the comely lady, and yet handsomer lord of the noble and most ancient house of Greengrass. Young they were, as wizards counted age, 
garbed in grey silken robes set with tiny dark emeralds embroidered into the shape of grass blades. The Lady Greengrass was considered a key swing vote on the Wizengamot, her own mother having retired from the body with surprising speed. Her charming husband, though his family was not noble or wealthy of itself, had taken a seat on the Hogwarts Board of Governors. To their right, a square-jawed and incredibly tough-looking old witch, who had shaken hands with Mr. and Mrs. Davis without the slightest hint of condescension. This was Amelia Bones, director of the Department of Magical Law Enforcement. To Amelia's right was a seniorish woman who had set the fashion scene of Magical Britain on its ear by integrating a live vulture into her hat, one Augusta Longbottom. Though she was not addressed as Lady, Madam Longbottom would exercise the full rights of the Longbottom family for so long as their last scion had yet to attain his majority and she was considered a prominent figure in a minority faction of the Wizengamot. At the side of Madame Longbottom was seated none other than the Chief Warlock Supreme Mugwump, Headmaster Albus Percival Wolfric Brian Dumbledore, legendary defeater of Grindelwald, protector of Britain, rediscoverer of the fabled Twelve Uses of Dragon's Blood, the most powerful wizard in the world. And finally, on the far right, one would find the enigmatic defense professor of Hogwarts, Quirinus Quirrell, who was leaning back on the cushioned benches as though resting, seeming entirely and naturally at ease in the rarefied company of a voting quorum of the Hogwarts Board of Governors, which had dropped by on this fine Saturday to learn just what the fiddly snocks had been going on at Hogwarts in general, and with Draco Malfoy, Theodore Knott, Daphne Greengrass, Susan Bones, and Neville Longbottom in particular. The name of Harry Potter had also been much discussed. Oh, and one mustn't forget Tracy Davis, of course. Director Bones's eyebrows had climbed in some interest upon hearing the young couple introduced as her parents. Lord Jugson had given them a brief, incredulous stare before dismissing them with a snort. Lucius Malfoy had greeted them politely, his smile containing a hint of grim amusement mixed with pity. Mr. and Mrs. Davis, whose last vote on anything of significance had been touching their wands to the name of Minister Fudge, who had all of three hundred galleons stored in their Gringotts vault, and who respectively worked at selling cauldrons in a potion shop and enchanting omnoculars, were pressed up tightly against each other, sitting rigidly erect upon their cushioned benches, and desperately wishing they'd worn nicer robes. The sky above was a solid mass of cloud, dispersed into darker and lighter greys, grim with the promise of future storms, though no lightning flickered as yet, nor distant rumbles of thunder echoed, and only a few threatening droplets had fallen. 
to their designated starting place in a certain forest, the Sunshine Regiment marched, though it was really more like a slow walk. You wouldn't want to tie yourself out before the battle even started, and the breezes of April were annoyingly humid, though cool. Ahead of them, a yellow flame wandered slowly through the air, guiding them according to their pace. Susan Bones kept throwing worried glances toward the Sunshine General as they marched through the greyly illuminated forest. Professor Snape's going after Hermione seemed to have really shaken her. Hermione had even missed her Sunshine Regiment official planning meeting, which seemed understandable enough. But when Susan had offered her sympathy afterward, Hermione had stammered that she'd lost track of time which wasn't at all a usual thing for her to say, and the girl had looked exhausted and frightened, like she'd just spent three days locked in a bathroom stall with a Dementor. Even now, when all the Sunshine General's focus should have been on the coming battle, the Ravenclaw girl's gaze was constantly darting in all directions as though she expected dark wizards to jump out of the bushes and sacrifice her. The ban on muggle artifacts cuts down our options a lot, Anthony Goldstein was saying in the dour tones the boy used to denote deliberate pessimism. I had the idea of trying to transfigure nets to throw on people, but no good, said Ernie McMillan. The Hufflepuff boy shook his head, looking even more serious than Antony. I mean, it's just like throwing a hex. They're dodge. Antony nodded. That's what I figured too. Do you have any ideas, Seamus? The former chaotic lieutenant still looked a bit nervous and out of place, marching along with his new comrades in the Sunshine Regiment. Sorry, said the newly minted Captain Finnegan. I'm more the strategic master type. I'm the strategic master type, said Ron Weasley, sounding put off. There are three armies, the Sunshine General said acerbically, which means we fight two armies at once, which means we need more than one strategist, which means shut up, Ron! Ron gave their general a surprised and worried look. Hey, the Gryffindor boy said in a calming tone. You shouldn't let Snape get to you so much. What do you think we ought to do, General? Susan said very loudly and quickly. I mean, we don't really have a plan at this point. Their official planning session had failed amazingly, with Hermione gone and both Ron and Antony thinking they were in charge. Do we really need a plan? The Sunshine General said, sounding a little distracted. We've got you, and me, and Lavender, and Pavati, and Hannah, and Daphne, and Ron, and Ernie, and Antony, and Captain Finnegan. That, began Antony, Sounds like a pretty good strategy, Ron said with an approving nod. We've got as many strong soldiers now as both other armies put together. Chaos has only got Potter and Longbottom, and not left. Well, 
And Zabini too, uh, I suppose. And Tracy, said Hermione. Several people swallowed nervously. Oh, stop it, Susan said sharply. She's just a battle-hardened member of Spew. That's all General Sunshine means. Still, Ernie said, turning to look seriously at Susan, we think you'd better go with whatever group fights chaos, Captain Bones. I know you can't use your double magical powers except when innocents are in danger, but I mean, just in case Miss Davis does, you know, go out of control and try to eat someone's soul. I can handle her, Susan told him, keeping her voice reassuring. Admittedly, Susan hadn't been replaced by a metamorphagus at the moment, but then Tracy probably wasn't polyjuiced Dumbledore or whoever. Captain Finnegan intoned in a deep, sort of rumbling voice, I find your lack of skepticism disturbing. He raised his hand with his thumb and forefinger almost touching, pointed at Ernie. For some reason, Anthony Goldstein seemed to have a sudden choking fit. What's that supposed to mean? said Ernie. It's just something General Parter says sometimes, said Captain Finnegan. Funny, when you first joined the Chaos Legion, it all seems crazy. And then, after a couple of months, you realise that actually everyone who isn't in the Chaos Legion is crazy. I said, Ron said loudly, it sounds like good strategy. We don't transfigure anything. We don't tire ourselves out. We handle whatever they throw at us, and then we just overrun them. Okay, said Hermione. Let's do that. But, said Antony, shooting a glare at Ron, but General, Harry Potter's got sixteen people left in his army. Dragon and us each have twenty-eight. Harry knows that. He knows he's got to come up with something incredible. Like what? demanded Hermione, sounding stressed. If we don't know what he's planning, we might as well save our magic for doing massed finites, like we should have done last time. Susan touched Hermione gently on the shoulder. General Granger, said Susan, I think you should take a break for a bit before the battle. She'd been expecting Hermione to argue, but Hermione just nodded and then walked a little faster, pulling away from the Sunshine Regiment official officer group, her eyes still watching the forest and sometimes the sky. Susan followed her. It wouldn't do having it look like the Sunshine General was being ejected from her own official officer group. Hermione, Susan said softly after they walked a bit away, you've got to focus. Professor Quirrell's in charge here, not Snape, and he won't let anything bad happen to you or anyone. You're not helping, Hermione said, sounding shaky. You're not helping at all, Captain Bones. The two of them walked faster, circling around some of the other soldiers, inspecting the marching perimeter and glancing at the surrounding trees. Susan? Hermione said in a small voice when they'd gotten further away from all the others. 
Do you think Daphne's right about Draco Malfoy plotting something? Yes, Susan said at once, not even thinking about it. You can tell because his name's got the letters M-A-L-F-O and Y in it. Hermione looked around, as if to make sure that nobody was watching, although of course that was a wonderful way to get other people to pay attention to you. Could Malfoy have been behind what Snape did? Snape could be behind Malfoy, Susan said thoughtfully, remembering dinner-table conversations she'd heard at Auntie's. Or Lucius Malfoy could be behind both of them. A slight chill went down Susan's spine as this last thought occurred to her. Suddenly, telling Hermione to just focus on the coming battle seemed a lot less reasonable. Why, did you find some sort of clue about that? Hermione shook her head. No, the Ravenclaw girl said in a voice that sounded almost like she was about to cry. I was just thinking about it myself. That's all. In their designated place in a forest near Hogwarts, the Dragon General and the warriors of Dragon Army waited where their red flame had led them, beneath grey skies. At Draco's side stood Padma Patil, his second in command, who had once led all of Dragon Army after Draco had been stunned. At Draco's back was Vincent, the son of Crab, a family which had served the Malfoys into the distance of forgotten memory. The muscular boy was watchful as he was always watchful, whether battle had been declared or no. Further back, Gregory of the Goyles stood waiting beside one of the two broomsticks Dragon Army had been given. If the Goyles had not served the Malfoys so long as the Crabs, yet they had served no less well. And at Draco's left side now stood one Dean Thomas of Gryffindor, a mudblood, or possible half-blood, who knew nothing of his father. Sending Dean Thomas to Dragon Army had been a quite deliberate move on Harry's part, Draco was certain. Three other former Chaotics had also been transferred to Dragon Army, and all were watching Draco hawk-like to see if he offered the former lieutenant the slightest insult. Some might have called it sabotage, but Draco knew better. Harry had also sent Lieutenant Finnegan to the Sunshine Regiment, even though Professor Quirrell's mandate had only required that Harry give up one lieutenant. That, too, had been a deliberate move, making crystal clear to everyone that Harry wasn't dumping his least favourite soldiers. In one sense, it might have been easier for Draco to win the true loyalties of his new soldiers if they'd thought Harry hadn't wanted them. In another sense, well, it wasn't easy to put into words. Harry had given him good soldiers with their pride intact, but it was more than that. Harry had showed kindliness toward his soldiers, but it was more than that. It wasn't just Harry playing fair. It was something that that you couldn't help but contrast with the way the game was played in Slytherin House. So, 
Draco hadn't offered the slightest insult to Mr. Thomas, but brought him straight to his side, subordinate to himself and Padma, but no one else. It was a test, Draco had told Mr. Thomas and everyone, not a promotion. Mr. Thomas would have to show himself worthy of rank within Dragon Army, but he would be given a chance, and the chance would be fair. Mr. Thomas had looked surprised at the ceremony of it. The Chaos Legion, from what Draco had heard, didn't stand on formality, but the Gryffindor boy had stood a little straighter and nodded. And then, after Mr. Thomas had done well enough in one of Dragon Army's training sessions, he had been brought into the strategy session in Dragon Army's huge military office. And a few minutes into the session, Padma had happened to ask, as though it was a perfectly normal question, whether Mr. Thomas had any ideas about how to defeat the Chaos Legion. The Gryffindor boy had said cheerfully that Harry had predicted that General Malfoy would get one of his soldiers to ask him that, and that Harry had given him the message that General Malfoy should ask himself where his relative advantage lay. What Draco Malfoy could do, or what Dragon Army could do, that Chaos Legion couldn't match, and then try to exploit it for all it's worth. Dean Thomas couldn't think of what that advantage might be, but if he did come up with any ideas for beating Chaos, he'd share them. Harry had ordered him to, after all. Sigh, Draco had thought, since he couldn't actually sigh out loud. But it was good advice, and Draco had followed it, sitting at his bedroom desk with quill and parchment, listing out everything that might be a relative advantage. And, almost to Draco's own surprise, he had an idea. A real one. In fact, he'd had two. The hollow bell sounded through the forest, somehow sounding more ominous than ever before. On the instant, the two pilots cried, Up! and leapt onto their broomsticks, heading into the grey sky. Mr. and Mrs. Davis had now slumped slightly against each other, more from sheer muscle exhaustion than from any decrease of tension. Before them, the vast blank white parchment flickered with three great windows, as though holes had been cut through into the forest, showing three armies on the march. Lesser windows showed the six riders upon their broomsticks, and the corner of the parchment showed a view of the entire forest, with glowing dots to indicate armies and scouts. The window into sunshine showed General Granger and her captains marching in the centre of the Sunshine Regiment, protected by Contago screens along with a number of other young witches. The Sunshine Regiment, the defence professor had remarked, knew well that it had now acquired a strong advantage in experienced soldiers, and it meant to protect those soldiers from a surprise attack. Aside from that, the Sunshine soldiers were moving forward at a steady march, conserving their strength. The soldiers in General Malfoy's army, 
at least those with higher transfiguration scores, were picking up leaves and transfiguring them into... Well, if you looked at Padma Patil, who was almost done with hers, it looked like her leaf was becoming a left-handed glove bearing a dangling strap. The window had zoomed in to show this. Lord Jugson was watching the screen with a flat expression. His voice, when he spoke, seemed to ooze and drip with disdain. What is your son doing, Lucius? The foreign-born witch, who stood at Draco Malfoy's side, had finished transfiguring her glove, and was now bringing it before the Dragon General like a sacrifice. I do not know, said Lucius Malfoy, his tone calm, though no less aristocratic. But I must trust that he has good reason for doing it. All Dragon Army stopped for a moment as Padma slid the glove over her left hand, strapped it in place, and presented it before Draco Malfoy, who also stopped in place, took several deep breaths, raised his wand, executed a precise set of eight movements, and bellowed, Coloportus! The Dragon Warrior raised her gloved hand, flexed it, and gave a small bow to Draco Malfoy, who returned it more shallowly, though the Dragon General was staggering slightly. Padma then returned to her place at Draco's side, and the dragons began marching once more. Well, remarked Augusta Longbottom, I don't suppose someone would care to explain. Amelia Bones was frowning slightly as she gazed at the screen. For some reason or other, said the amused voice of Professor Quirrell, it seems that the scion of Malfoy is able to cast surprisingly strong magic for a first-year student, due to the purity of his blood, of course. Certainly, the good Lord Malfoy would not have openly flouted the underage magic laws by arranging for his son to receive a wand before his acceptance into Hogwarts. I suggest you be careful in your implications. Squirrel, Lucius Malfoy said coldly. Oh, I am, Professor Quirrell said. A coloportus cannot be dispelled by finite incantatum. It requires an alohomora of equal strength. Until then, a glove so charmed will resist lesser material forces, deflect the sleep hex, and the stunning hex. And as neither Mr. Potter nor Miss Granger can cast a counterspell powerful enough, that charm is invincible upon this battlefield. It is not the original intent of the charm, nor the intent of whoever taught Mr. Malfoy an emergency spell for evading his enemies. But it would seem that Mr. Malfoy has been learning creativity. Lucius Malfoy had straightened as the defense professor spoke. He now sat erect upon his cushioned bench, 
his head held perceptibly higher than before, and when he spoke it was with quiet pride. He will be the greatest Lord Malfoy that has yet lived. Faint praise, Augusta Longbottom said under her breath. Amelia Bones chuckled, as did Mr. Davis for a tiny, fatal fraction of a second before he stopped with a strangled gargle. I quite agree, said Professor Quirrell, though it wasn't clear to whom he spoke. Unfortunately for Mr. Malfoy, he is still new to the art of creativity, and so he has committed a classic error of Ravenclaw. And what might that be? said Lucius Malfoy, his voice now turned chill once more. Professor Quirrell had leaned back in his seat, the pale blue eyes briefly unfocusing as one of the windows shifted its viewpoint within the greater screen, zooming in to show the sweat now on Draco Malfoy's forehead. It is such a beautiful idea that Mr. Malfoy has quite overlooked its pragmatic difficulties. Would someone care to explain that? said Lady Greengrass. Not all of us present are experts at such affairs. Amelia Bones spoke, the old witch's voice somewhat dry. It will tempt them to try to catch hexes that they would be wiser to simply dodge, the more so if they have had little practice catching them, and the casting of so many charms will tire their strongest warrior. Professor Quirrell gave the DMLE director a half nod of acknowledgement. As you say, Madam Bones, Mr. Malfoy is new to the business of having ideas, and so when he has one, he becomes proud of himself for having it. He has not yet had enough ideas to unflinchingly discard those that are beautiful in some aspects and impractical in others. He has not yet acquired confidence in his own ability to think of better ideas as he requires them. What we are seeing here is not Mr. Malfoy's best idea, I fear, but rather his only idea. Lord Malfoy simply turned to watch the screens again, as though the defense professor had used up his right to exist. But, said Lord Greengrass, but what in Merlin's name is Harry Potter? Sixteen remaining soldiers of the Chaos Legion, or fifteen plus Blaise Zabini, rather, marched confidently through the forest, their shoes thudding over the still dry ground. Their camouflaged uniforms blended into the forest even more than usual, all colours washed out by the tints of an overcast day. Sixteen Chaos Legionnaires against twenty-eight Dragon Warriors and twenty-eight Sunshine Soldiers. The common consensus had been that, with odds that bad, it was practically impossible for them to lose.' 
After all, General Chaos was bound to come up with something really spectacular facing odds like that. There was something almost nightmarish about how everyone seemed to now expect Harry to pull miracles out of his hat on demand any time one was needed. It meant that if you couldn't do the impossible, you were disappointing your friends and failing to live up to your potential. Harry hadn't bothered complaining to Professor Quirrell about too much pressure. Harry's mental model of the defense professor had predicted him looking severely annoyed, saying things along the lines of, You are perfectly capable of solving this problem, Mr. Potter. Did you even try? And then deducting several hundred quirrel points. From above, from where two broomsticks watched their march, the high young voice of Tess Walsh cried, Friend! And after another moment, Ginger Snap! A handful of seconds later, the soldier who'd codenamed herself Ginger Snap returned bearing a double handful of acorns, sweating slightly in the cold but humid air from the jog that had taken her to the oak tree Neville had spotted. Ginger Snap approached to where Shannon was holding a uniform skirt, with the neck tied off, in lieu of anyone having to transfigure a bag. When Ginger Snap brought her hands forward to try and dump her acorns into the holding shirt, Chaotic Shannon, giggling, jerked the shirt to the right, then to the left again as Ginger Snap made another effort to dump the acorns until a sharp, Miss Friedman, from Lieutenant Knott, caused Shannon to sigh and hold the shirt still. Ginger Snap dumped her acorns into those accumulated and then headed out for more. Somewhere in the background, Ellie Knight was singing her very own version of the Chaos Legion's marching song, and around half the other soldiers were trying to step along with it despite not knowing the tune in advance. Nearby, Nita Burdine, who had a high transfiguration score, finished creating yet another pair of green sunglasses and handed them to Adam Burringer, who folded up the sunglasses before tucking them into his uniform pocket. Other soldiers were already wearing their own green sunglasses, despite the cloudy day. You might guess that there was some sort of incredibly complicated and fascinating explanation behind this, and you would be right. Two days earlier, Harry had been sitting amid his bookcases in the comfy rocking chair he'd obtained for his trunk's cavern level pondering silently in the quiet span between classes and dinnertime, thinking about power. For sixteen Chaotics to defeat twenty-eight Sunnies and twenty-eight Dragons, they would need a Force Amplifier. There were limits to what you could do with maneuver. There had to be a secret weapon, and it had to be invincible or at least moderately unstoppable. Muggle artifacts were now illegal in Hogwarts mock battles, banned by Ministry Edict. And the trouble with finding some other clever and unusual spell was that any army twice your own size could bruise Fort Finite almost anything you tried. 
The Sunshine Regiment might have missed that tactic with the transfigured chainmail, but nobody would miss it again now that Professor Quirrell had pointed it out. And Finite Incantatum was a brute force counterspell which required at least as much magic as the spell being cancelled, which, if you were severely outnumbered, made a whole new order of military challenge. The enemy could finite anything you tried, and still have enough magic left over for shields and volleys of sleepexes. Unless, somehow, you could invoke potencies beyond the ordinary strength of first-year Hogwarts students, something too powerful for the enemy to finite. So, Harry had asked Neville if he had ever heard of any small, safe sacrificial rituals. And then, after the screaming and the shouting had subsided, after Harry had stopped trying to argue about unbreakable vows and just given up on the whole thing as impossible from a public relations standpoint, Harry had realised that he hadn't even needed to go there. They taught you how to invoke potencies far beyond your own strength in ordinary Hogwarts classes. Sometimes, even though you were looking straight at something, you didn't realise what you were looking at until you happened to ask exactly the right question. Defence, charms, transfiguration, potions, history of magic, astronomy, broomstick flying, herbology. Foe! screamed the voice from above. It was a good thing that Neville Longbottom hadn't the tiniest idea that his grandmother was watching, or he would have been more self-conscious about screaming scary battle cries at the top of his lungs while casting Luminos every three seconds as he rocketed through a dense forest of trees, hot on the tail of Gregory Goyle. But, Augusta Longbottom said, her expression showing almost as much astonishment as worry. But Neville is afraid of heights. Not all fears last, said Amelia Bones. The old witch was favouring the great screen before them with a measuring gaze. Or perhaps he has found courage. It is much the same in the end. A glimmer of red. Neville dodged very nearly into a tree, but he did dodge, and then Neville somehow also managed to dodge almost all of the branches before they smacked him in the face. Now Mr Goyle's broomstick was pulling further and further away, even though the two of them were riding exactly the same broomstick and Mr Goyle weighed more. Somehow Neville was still falling behind. So Neville slowed down, pulled back, angled up out of the forest and began to accelerate back toward where the Chaos Legion still marched. Twenty seconds later, it hadn't been a long chase, just an exciting one, Neville was back among his fellow Chaotics and dismounted his broom to walk on the ground for a little bit. Neville, said General Potter, 
Harry's voice was a little distant as he walked carefully and steadily through the forest, his wand still applied to the almost finished form of the object he was slowly transfiguring. Beside him, Blaze Zabini, working a smaller version of the same transfiguration, looked like a shambling in theory as he stumbled forward. I told you. Neville, you don't have to... Yes, I do, said Neville. He looked down at where his fingers grasped the broomstick and saw that not just his hands, but his whole arms were shaking. But unless anyone else in chaos had been practicing dueling for an hour a day with Mr. Diggory and then practicing their aim in private for another hour afterward, Neville was probably the best shot from a broomstick, even after taking into account that he wasn't a very good flyer. Good show, Neville, Theodore said from where he was walking ahead of them all, leading the Chaos Legion forward through the forest while wearing only his undershirt. Augusta Longbottom and Charles Knott exchanged brief, astonished glances and then wrenched their gazes away from one another as though stung. Neville took a few deep breaths, trying to steady his hands, trying to think. Harry might not be good for deep strategic thinking while he was in the middle of an extended transfiguration. Lieutenant Knott... Do you have any idea why Dragon Army just did that? They lost a broom. The dragons had started the combat with a feint to provide a distraction for Mr. Goyle's approach through the forest. Neville hadn't realized there were two brooms attacking until almost too late, but the Chaos Legion had gotten the other pilot. That was why broomsticks usually didn't attack before armies met, it meant a whole army would concentrate fire on the broomstick. And the dragons didn't even get anyone, did they? Nope, Tracy Davis said proudly. She, too, was now marching by General Potter's side, her wand gripped low and watchful as her eyes scanned the surrounding forest. I threw up a prismatic sphere like a split second before Mr. Goyle's hex got Sabini, and the way Mr. Goyle had his other arm stretched out, I think he planned to knock down the general too. The Slytherin witch smiled with vicious confidence. Mr. Goyle tried a breaking drill hex, but learned to his dismay that his weak magic was no match for my newfound dark powers. <laughs> Some chaotics laughed with her, but a queasy sensation was starting in Neville's stomach as he realized how close the Chaos Legion had come to complete disaster. If Mr. Goyle had managed to disrupt both transfigurations... Report! snapped the Dragon General, doing his best to conceal the fatigue he felt after casting seventeen locking charms. With more yet to come. Beads of sweat now dotted Gregory's forehead. The enemy got Dylan Vaughan, Gregory said formally. Harry Potter and Blaze Sabini were each transfiguring something dark grey and roundish. I don't think it was finished, but it looked like it would be big and hollow sort of cauldron-shaped. Zabini's was smaller than Potter's. 
I couldn't get either of them to disrupt their transfigurations. Tracy Davis blocked me. Neville Longbottom's on a broomstick and he's still a terrible flyer, but his aim is really good. Draco listened, frowning, and then he glanced at Padma and Dean Thomas, who both shook their own heads, indicating that they also couldn't think of what might be big and grey and shaped like a cauldron. Anything else? said Draco. If that was it, they'd lost a broom for nothing. The only other weird thing I saw, Gregory said, sounding puzzled, was that some chaotics were wearing... Sort of like... Goggles? Draco thought about this, not noticing that he'd stopped marching, or that all of Dragon Army had automatically stopped with him. Was there anything special about the goggles? Draco said. Um, Gregory said. They were... uh, Greenish? Maybe. Okay, said Draco. Again, without thinking, he began walking once more, and his dragons followed. Here's our new strategy. We're only going to send eleven dragons against the Chaos Legion, not fourteen. That should be enough to beat them, now that we can neutralize their special advantage. It was a gamble, but you had to take gambles sometimes if you wanted to come in first in a three-way battle. You figured out Chaos's plan, General Malfoy, said Mr. Thomas with considerable surprise. What are they doing? said Padma. I haven't the faintest idea, said Draco with a smirk of the most refined smugness. We'll just do the obvious thing. Harry, having now finished his cauldron, was carefully scooping acorns into the container while the scouts searched for a nearby source of water that could be used as a liquid base. They'd come across frequent sinkholes and miniature creeks in the forest before, so it ought not to take long. Another scout had brought a straight stick that would serve as a stirrer, so that Harry didn't have to transfigure one. Sometimes... Even though you were looking straight at something, you didn't realize what you were looking at until you happened to ask exactly the right question. How can I invoke magical powers that ought to be beyond the reach of first-year students? There was a cautionary tale the potions master had told them, with much sneers and laughter to make the stupidity seem low status instead of daring and romantic, about a second-year witch in Beaubaton, who stole some extremely restricted and expensive ingredients and tried to brew polyjuice so she could borrow the form of another girl for purposes better left unmentioned. Only, she had managed to contaminate the potion with cat hairs, and then instead of seeking a healer immediately, the witch had hidden herself in a bathroom, hoping the effects would just wear off, and when she had finally been found, it had been too late to reverse the transformation completely, condemning her to a life of despair as a sort of cat-girl hybrid. Harry hadn't realized what that meant 
until the instant of thinking the right question. But what that implied was that a young wizard or witch could do things with potions making that they couldn't even come close to doing with charms. Polyjuice was one of the most potent potions known. But what made Polyjuice an N-E-W-T-level potion, apparently, wasn't the required age before you had enough magical power, it was how difficult the potion was to brew precisely and what happened to you if you screwed up. Nobody in any army had tried brewing any potions up until then, but Professor Quirrell would let you get away with nearly anything if it was something you could also have done in a real war. Cheating is technique, the defence professor had once lectured them. Or rather, cheating is what the losers call technique, and will be worth extra quirrell points when executed successfully. In principle, there was nothing unrealistic about transfiguring a couple of cauldrons and brewing potions out of whatever came to hand, if you had enough time before the armies met. So, Harry had retrieved his copy of Magical Drafts and Potions, and begun looking for a safe but useful potion he could brew in the minutes before the battle started. A potion which would win the battle too fast for counterspells, or produce spell effects too strong for first years to finite. Sometimes, even though you were looking straight at something, you didn't realize what you were looking at until you happened to ask exactly the right question. What potion can I brew using only components gathered from an ordinary forest? Every recipe in Magical Drafts and Potions used at least one ingredient from a magical plant or animal, which was unfortunate because all the magical plants and animals were in the Forbidden Forest, not the safer and lesser woods where battles were held. Someone else might have given up at that point. Harry had turned the pages from one recipe to another, skimming faster and faster in dawning realization, confirming what he had already read and was now seeing for the first time. Every single potions recipe seemed to demand at least one magical ingredient. But why should that be true? Charms required no material components at all. You just said the words and waved your wand. Harry had been thinking about potions making as essentially analogous. Instead of your spoken syllables triggering a spell effect for no comprehensible reason, you collected a batch of disgusting ingredients and stirred four times clockwise, and that arbitrarily triggered a spell effect. In which case, given that most potions used ordinary components like porcupine quills or stewed slugs, you'd expect to see some potions using only ordinary components. But instead, 
Every single recipe in magical drafts and potions demanded at least one component from a magical plant or animal. An ingredient like silk from an acromantula, or petals from a Venus firetrap. Sometimes, even though you were looking straight at something, you didn't realize what you were looking at until you happened to ask exactly the right question. If making a potion is like casting a charm, why don't I fall over from exhaustion after brewing a draught as powerful as boil curing? The Friday before last, Harry's double potions class had brewed potions of boil curing, although even the most trivial healing charms, if you tried to cast them with wand and incantation, were at least fourth-year spells. And afterward, they'd all felt the way they usually felt after potions class, namely not magically exhausted to any discernible degree. Harry had shut his copy of Magical Drafts and Potions with a snap, and rushed down to the Ravenclaw common room. Harry had found a seventh-year Ravenclaw doing his N.E.W.T. potions homework, and paid the older boy a sickle to borrow most ponte potions for five minutes. Because Harry hadn't wanted to run all the way to the library to find confirmation. After skimming through five recipes in the seventh year book, Harry had read the sixth recipe for a potion of fire-breathing which required ashwinder eggs, and the book warned that the resulting fire could be no hotter than the magical fire which had spawned the ashwinder which had laid the eggs. Harry had shouted, Eureka! right in the middle of the Ravenclaw common room, and been severely rebuked by a nearby prefect, who thought Mr. Potter was trying to cast a spell. Nobody in the wizarding world knew or cared about some ancient muggle named Archimedes, nor the ur-physicist's realization that the water displaced from a bathtub would equal the volume of the object entering the bathtub. Conservation Laws there'd been the critical insight in more muggle discoveries than Harry could easily count. In muggle technology, you couldn't raise a feather one meter off the ground without the power coming from somewhere. If you looked at molten lava spilling from a volcano and asked where the heat came from, a physicist would tell you about radioactive heavy metals in the center of the Earth's molten core. If you asked where the energy to power the radioactivity came from, the physicist would point to an era before the Earth had formed, and a primordial supernova in the early days of the galaxy which had baked atomic nuclei heavier than the natural limit, the supernova compressing protons and neutrons into a tight, unstable package that yielded back some of the supernova's energy when it split. A light bulb was fueled by electricity, fueled by a nuclear power plant, fueled by a supernova. You could play the game all the way back to the Big Bang. Magic did not appear to work like this, uh, to put it mildly.
Magic's attitude towards laws like conservation of energy was somewhere between a giant extended middle finger and a shrug of total indifference. Aguamenti created water out of nothingness, so far as anyone knew. There was no known lake whose water level went down each time. That was a simple fifth-year spell, not considered impressive by wizards, because creating a mere glass of water didn't seem amazing to them. They didn't have the wacky notion that mass ought to be conserved, or that creating a gram of mass was somehow equivalent to creating ninety trillion joules of energy. There was an upper-year spell Harry had run across whose literal incantation was Arresto Momentum, and when Harry had asked if the momentum went anywhere else, he'd just gotten a puzzled look. Harry had kept an increasingly desperate eye out for some kind of conservation principle in magic, anywhere whatsoever. And the whole time it had been right in front of him in every potions class. Potions making didn't create magic. It preserved magic. That was why every potion needed at least one magical ingredient. And by following instructions like stir four times counterclockwise and once clockwise, Harry hypothesized, you were doing something like casting a small spell that reshaped the magic in the ingredients, and unbound the physical form so that ingredients like porcupine quills dissolved smoothly into a drinkable liquid. Harry strongly suspected that a muggle following exactly the same recipe would end up with nothing but a spiny mess. That was what potions-making really was, the art of transforming existing magical essences. So, you were a little tired after potions class, but not much, because you weren't empowering the potions yourself. You were just reshaping magic that was already there. And that was why a second-year witch could brew polyjuice, or at least get close. Harry had kept scanning through most potente potions, looking for something that might disprove his shiny new theory. After five minutes, he'd flipped the older boy another sickle, over his protests, and kept going. The potion of giant strength required a ream to trample the mashed dug bogs you stirred into the potion. It was odd, Harry had realised after a moment, because crushed dug bogs weren't strong themselves. They were just very, very crushed after the ream got through with them. Another recipe said to touch with forged bronze, i.e. grasp a knut in pliers so you could skim the potion's surface, and if you dropped the knut all the way in, the book warned, the potion would instantly superheat and boil over the cauldron. Harry had stared at the recipes and their warnings, forming a second and stranger hypothesis. 
Of course, it wouldn't be as simple as potions making using magical potentials imbued in the ingredients, like muggle cars fueled by the combustion potential of gasoline. Magic would never be as sensible as that. And then Harry had gone to Professor Flitwick, since he didn't want to approach Professor Snape outside of class, and Harry had told Professor Flitwick that he wanted to invent a new potion, and he knew what the ingredients ought to be and what the potion should do, but he didn't know how to deduce the required stirring pattern. After Professor Flitwick had stopped screaming in horror and running in little circles, and Professor McGonagall had been called into the ensuing fierce interrogation to promise Harry that, in this case, it was both acceptable and important for him to reveal his underlying theory, it had developed that Harry had not made an original magical discovery, but rediscovered a law so ancient that nobody knew who had first formulated it. A potion spends that which is invested in the creation of its ingredients. The heat of goblin forges that had cast the bronze knut, the reem's strength that had crushed the dugbogs, the magical fire that had spawned the ashwinder. All these potencies could be recalled, unlocked and restructured by the spell-like process of stirring the ingredients in exact patterns. From a muggle standpoint, it was just odd, a deranged version of thermodynamics invented by someone who thought life ought to be fair. From a muggle standpoint, the heat expended in forging the knut hadn't gone into the bronze, the heat had left and dissipated into the environment, becoming permanently less available. Energy was conserved, could be neither created nor destroyed, entropy always increased. But wizards didn't think that way. From their perspective, if you'd put some amount of work into making a knut, it stood to reason that you could get exactly the same work back out. Harry had tried to explain why this sounded a bit odd if you'd been raised by muggles, and Professor McGonagall had asked bemusedly why the muggle perspective was any better than the wizarding one. The fundamental principle of potions-making had no name and no standard phrasing. Since then, you might be tempted to write it down, and someone who wasn't wise enough to figure out the principle themselves might read it, and they would start having all sorts of bright ideas for inventing new potions, and then they would be turned into catgirls. It had been made very clear to Harry that he wasn't going to be sharing this particular discovery with Neville or Hermione either after the next army's battle. Harry had tried to say something about Hermione seeming really off lately and this being just the sort of thing that might cheer her up. Professor McGonagall had said flatly that he wasn't even to think it, and Professor Flitwick had raised his little hands and made a gesture as of snapping a wand in half. Although the two professors had been kind enough to suggest that if Mr. Potter thought he knew what the potion's ingredient should be, 
he might be able to find an already existing recipe that did the same thing, and Professor Flitwick had mentioned several volumes in the Hogwarts library that might be useful. The vast, parchment-like screen now showed only an aerial view of the forest, from which you could barely make out the camouflaged forms of three armies, split up into two groups each, converging to fight their three-way battle. The benches of the Quidditch Stadium were now rapidly filling up with the more easily bored sort of spectator, who only wanted to be there for the final battle and skip out on all the boring points along the way. If there was anything wrong with Professor Quirrell's battles, it was widely agreed it was that his spectacles didn't last nearly as long as Quidditch matches once they actually started. To this, Professor Quirrell had replied only, Such is realism. And that had been that. Within the huge window, it was all one window now, observing from a great height, the vague collections of tiny camouflaged forms grew closer. Closer, almost touching. The vast white parchment window showed the first touch of battle between sunshine and chaos, a screaming mass of running children with smiley faces upon their breasts, charging forward with contago shields held high and others shouting, Somnium! Until one of their number shrieked, Prismatis! In a terrified voice, and the entire charge came to a sudden halt before the sparkling wall of force that had appeared in front of them. Tracy Davis had walked out from behind the trees. That's right, said Tracy, her voice low and grim as she levelled her wand on the barrier. You should fear me, for I am Tracy Davis, the Dark Lady. That's Dark Lady spelt D-A-R-K-A -E, with an A. Amelia Bones, director of the Department of Magical Law Enforcement, was sending an inquiring look at Mr. and Mrs. Davis, both of whom looked like they would have dearly preferred to die on the spot. Behind the prismatic barrier, there was some kind of hushed argument taking place among the Sunshine soldiers, one of whom in particular seemed to be getting scolded by several of the others. Then, a moment later, Tracy flinched. Susan Bones had come to the front of the Sunshine contingent. Goodness, said Augusta Longbottom. What do you suppose your grandniece has been learning at Hogwarts? I don't know, Amelia Bones said calmly. But I shall owl her a chocolate frog and instructions to learn more of it. The prismatic barrier vanished. The Sunshine soldiers resumed their charge forward. Tracy yelled, her voice high with strain. Inflammary! And the Sunshine charge came to another sudden halt as a line of fire blazed up between them in the half-dry grass, extending to follow the path of Tracy's wand as she pointed it, an instant later, Susan Bones cried, Finite Incantatum!
and the flames dimmed, brightened, dimmed in the contest of their wills, other soldiers raising their wands to aim at Tracy, and that was when Neville Longbottom plunged shrieking out of the sky. One of the dragon warriors, Raymond Arnold, made a hand sign pointing forward and oblique left, and there was a sudden hushed hiss of whispers among the dragon army contingent as they all quietly reoriented themselves in the direction of the enemy. The Sunnies knew they were there, of course, both armies knew, but somehow, in this moment, they had all become instinctively quiet. The dragons crept forward further, and then further, the dull camouflaged forms of the sunnies beginning to appear among the distant trees, and still nobody spoke. Nobody bellowed the call to charge. Draco was now at the forefront of his soldiers, Vincent behind him, and Padma only a shade further back. If the three of them could take the shock of Sunshine's best, the rest of Dragon Army might stand a chance. Then, Draco saw one Sunny staring at him from the distance, in the vanguard of her own army, staring at him with a look of fury. Across the forest battleground, their eyes met. Draco had only a fraction of a second to wonder, in the back of his mind, what Hermione Granger was so angry about before the shout went up from both their armies and they were all running forward to the charge. The other Chaotics had appeared now from among the trees, some had dropped out of trees, and the battle was in full force now, everyone firing in every direction at anything that looked like an enemy, plus a number of sunnies crying, us!" at Neville Longbottom as the Chaos Hufflepuff twisted and rocketed up through the air on courses that could only be described as, indeed, chaotic. And it happened, the way it happened only one time out of twenty in mock aerial combat, that Neville Longbottom's broomstick glowed bright red beneath his clenched hands. It should have meant that Longbottom was out of the game. Then, in the Hogwarts stands, among the watching crowds of students, a scream went up. Combat realism! It was Professor Quirrell's one master rule. You could get away with anything if it was realistic. And in real life, a soldier didn't just vanish when their broomstick got hit by a curse. Neville was falling toward the ground and screaming, A chaotic landing! and the Chaotics were wrenching their attention away from fights to cast the hover charm and run at the same time so they wouldn't be sitting ducks, almost everyone else stopping to gape. And Neville Longbottom slammed into the leaf-laden forest ground, landing on one knee, one foot and both hands as though he were kneeling down to be knighted. Everything stopped. Even Tracy and Susan paused in their duel. 
in the stadium, all crowd noises vanished. There was a universal silence composed of astonishment, concern, and sheer, dumbstruck, gaping awe as everyone waited to see what would happen next. And then, Neville Longbottom slowly rose to his feet and levelled his wand at the Sunshine Soldiers. Though nobody on the battlefield heard it, a large segment of the stadium audience had begun chanting in steadily rising notes each time the word was uttered, Doom, 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 doom! because you just couldn't see that and not think it required musical accompaniment. The crowd is cheering your grandson, said Amelia Bones. The old witch was favouring the screen with a measuring look. So they are, said Augusta Longbottom. Some, if I hear correctly, are cheering our blood for Neville, our souls for Neville. Quite said Amelia, taking a sip from a teacup which had not been there moments earlier. It shows the lad has leadership potential. These cheers, continued Augusta, her voice taking on an even more stunned quality, seem to be coming from the Hufflepuff benches. It is the house of the loyal, my dear, said Amelia. Albus Percival Wolfric Brian Dumbledore, what in Merlin's name has been happening in this school? Lucius Malfoy was watching the screens with an ironic smile, his fingers tapping at his armrest in no discernible pattern. I do not know what is more frightening, the thought that he has some hidden plan behind all this, or the thought that he does not. Look! cried the Lord of Greengrass. The dapper young man had risen half out of his chair, pointing his finger at the screen. There she goes! We'll both take him at once, Daphne whispered. She knew that a few fear-filled minutes of real combat experience, a handful of times each week, might not be enough to match Neville's regular duelling practice with Harry and Cedric Diggory over the same period. He's too much for one of us, but both of us together. I'll use my charm. You just try to stun him. Hannah beside her nodded, and then they both screamed at the top of their lungs and charged forward the hover charms of two supporting sunshine soldiers moving them faster and making them light on their feet. Daphne already crying, Tunare! even as Hannah kept a huge contago shield moving in front of them, and with a brief extra lift they leapt over the heads of the front screen of soldiers and landed in front of Neville with their hair billowing high around them. Photographs were strictly prohibited at all Hogwarts games, but somehow this moment still ended up on the front page of the next day's quibbler. And in the same instant, because fighting older bullies had burned away the slightest traces of hesitation, Hannah fired her first sleep-hex at Neville. She'd started the incantation while she was still in the air, even as Daphne, 
concentrating more on speed than on force, slashed down with her ancient blade at where she thought Neville's thighs would be after he dodged. But Neville leapt up, not sideways, leapt up higher than he should have been able to go so that her glowing sword cut only the air beneath his feet. Somehow, Daphne realized what it meant that Neville still had other Chaotics hovering him, in time for her to raise her blade up over her head. But Neville fell too fast, and when his blade smashed into hers, it was like being hit by a bludger. It knocked Daphne off her feet and sent her sprawling backward onto the grass, hitting the ground hard on her back. It might have been all over for her then, if Neville hadn't landed too hard himself and gone to his knees with a pained gasp. And then, before Neville could bring his glowing blade back down, Hannah shouted, Somnium! And Neville lurched frantically backward, though of course no spell had actually come from Hannah's wand. The Hufflebuff girl couldn't really have fired again that fast, which gave Daphne a second to scramble to her feet and get both hands around her wand again. "'Dear Merlin,' said Lady Greengrass. Her voice seemed unsteady, the aristocratic poise well punctured. "'My daughter is fighting with the charm of the most ancient blade in her first year. I never knew she possessed such extraordinary talent.' "'Excellent blood,' Charles Knott said approvingly, causing Augusta to snort. "'My good lady,' said Professor Quirrell, sounding grave, "'do not wrong your daughter so. "'That is not mere talent which you see.' "'His voice grew a little drier. "'Rather, it is what happens when children put their competitive efforts "'into a game which involves actual spellcasting.' "'Expelliarmus!' shouted Draco, trying not to let his voice crack as he simultaneously dodged the blazing red stunbolt that Hermione Granger had fired at him, his muscles twisting with the need to dodge in the wrong direction. She had pointed to his left and then with a mysterious twitch fired right. Hermione dodged the fast-moving dueling hex and cried with hardly another moment's pause, "'Stellius!' A wide angle hex that Draco couldn't avoid, but he managed to point his wand at his own face and cried, Quietus! before the sudden urge to inhale could devolve into a sneezing fit that would have ended the battle. Draco Malfoy was already half exhausted from all the locking charms and transfigurations earlier, but his confusion was beginning to give way to a sense of his own blood boiling. He didn't know why Granger was attacking him so angrily all of a sudden. But if she wanted a fight, he'd give her one. The dragons and sunnies weren't stopping to watch the duel of their generals. The dragons were too disciplined to stop and watch, and that meant the sunnies had to go on fighting too. But the gaping audience in the Hogwarts Quidditch stands were being distracted even from Neville and Daphne's spectacle shifting their eyes to the duel of two generals as Malfoy and Granger fired hex after hex and jinx after jinx at each other, casting more rapidly than any other student in their year could have managed. 
The Dragon General's trained dueling dance matched by the Sunshine General's frantic energy, the combat between them beginning to resemble an adult duel as the two most magically powerful first years resorted to spells more exotic than usual sleep hex. Although, Draco was beginning to realize, when he and Harry and Professor Quirrell had dismissed Miss Granger as having as much intent to kill as a bowl of wet grapes, they'd never seen her angry. Daphne lashed out with her ancient blade, again not trying to hit hard but just moving the blade as fast as possible. At the same time, Hannah cried, Somnium! And Neville leapt back again, but it had been another bluff, and Hannah was moving in to fire a real spell almost point-blank. And Neville Longbottom did exactly what, he would explain afterward, Cedric Diggory had trained him to do if he was fighting Bellatrix Black, which was to spin around and kick Hannah really hard in the pit of her stomach. The Hufflepuff girl made a sad little sound, a gasping cry of pain, as she was knocked off her feet by the hard shoe sinking into her abdomen with the force of Neville's whole body behind it. For an instant, the battlefield stood still, everything halting except Hannah's falling form. Then Neville's face turned to absolute dismay and he lowered his wand, the chaotic lieutenant starting instinctively toward his housemate as he reached for her with his other hand. Even as Hannah turned her fall into a roll and came out with her wand raised and shot him. A fractional second later, Daphne, who hadn't hesitated either, sank her most ancient blade squarely into Neville's back, causing the chaotic lieutenant's muscles to jerk convulsively with the stunning magic discharged into him even as Hannah's sleep hex took effect. And then the last scion of Longbottom was sprawled still on the ground with a look of total surprise frozen to his face. Today, Mr. Longbottom has learned a valuable lesson about his feelings of pity and remorse, said Professor Quirrell. And chivalry, said Amelia, sipping her tea again. Are you all right? whispered Daphne as she stood protectively over where Hannah lay on the ground, clutching her stomach. The girl didn't give anything back in reply, except more retching sounds that sounded like Hannah was trying not to throw up while trying not to cry. Somehow, even though it might not have been good tactics, it would have been better if Hannah had been hexed outright than for other soldiers to be tied up protecting her. A number of sunnies seemed to be standing in front of Hannah with their wands clutched tightly, staring angrily at the chaotics. Someone had thrown up a prismatic barrier between the two groups, Daphne couldn't see who. And for some reason, the Chaotics didn't seem to be pressing the attack. Even Tracy had completely dropped the grim look on her face and was shifting her weight nervously from one foot to the other, as though she was having trouble remembering which side she was on. Hold! shouted a voice. Hold the battle! 
There wasn't much battle going on anyway, but it held. General Potter, looking every inch the boy who lived, strode out from the trees with something large and camouflage cloth covered held under one arm. Is Miss Abbott breathing all right? General Potter yelled. Daphne didn't look back. She didn't trust that this wasn't a trap. It was absolutely certain that if the Chaotix took the opportunity to attack, Professor Quirrell would not only rule it legal, but also award them extra points afterward. But Daphne could hear the answer well enough with her ears. It wasn't like Hannah was trying to breathe quietly, and so she said, Sort of. She should just get out of here and to someone who can use healing charms, Harry said, just in case that broke something. From behind Daphne, a small gasping voice said, I can uh, uh, still fight. Miss Abbott, don't, Harry said, just as there was the sound from behind Daphne of someone collapsing back to the grass after trying and failing to get to her feet. Everyone winced, but Daphne didn't turn her back on Harry. Why haven't the teachers stopped the battle? said Susan, her voice angry. I expect it's because Miss Abbott is in no danger of permanent damage and Professor Quirrell thinks we're learning valuable lessons, Harry said in a hard voice. Look, Miss Abbott, if you go, Tracy will also retire from the battle. You already outnumber us, so that's a very good deal for your side. Please take it. Hannah, just go, said Daphne. I mean, just say you're out. When Daphne glanced back, she saw that Hannah was shaking her head, still curled up in a ball on the grass. Oh, screw this, said Harry. Chaotix, the faster we stun them, the faster she's out of here. We're going to do this very quickly, even if we take casualties. End truce, shoot a fish! Daphne's political hindbrain had only an instant to admire how Harry's few words had just made the Chaotix the good guys, and then, in almost perfect unison, the Chaotix were plunging their hands into the pockets of their uniforms and drawing out green sunglasses in an unfamiliar style. Not like anything you would wear to the beach, more like goggles for advanced potions. Then Daphne realised what was about to happen and snapped up her other hand to shield her eyes just as Harry ripped the cloth off the cauldron. The fluid that spilled forth as Harry threw the cauldron's contents into the air was too bright to be seen, too brilliant to be imagined, incandescent like the sun magnified a dozen times. Which was exactly what it was. The sunlight which had been invested to create the acorns, the bright energy that had fueled a tree rising up from the bare dirt. Blazing a searing purple, the colour of the mixed blue and red wavelengths that chlorophyll absorbed, with almost none of the green wavelengths that chlorophyll reflected to create the green colour of leaves, which, 
was the color of the Chaos Legion's sunglasses, made to pass through green wavelengths, blocking red and blue, reducing even the most incandescent purple glare to something bearable. The violet light blazed on and on. Daphne tried dropping her arm from her eyes, but found that she couldn't look directly at anything. Even the second-hand purple glare was so bright she had to squint, and she only had time to cry one finite incantatum, which didn't work, before a sleep hex took her. What was left of the battle didn't take very long after that. Now, bellowed Blaze Zabini, formerly of Sunshine, now commanding a detachment of Chaos Legionnaires. I mean, tuna fish! The Slytherin boy's hand grasped the cloth shielding the cauldron from the triggering touch of daylight, already beginning to move it aside. Now! bellowed Dean Thomas, formerly of Chaos, commanding a consignment of dragon warriors. Do whatever they do! The chaotics of Zabini's detachment plunged their hands into their uniform pockets and came forth bearing green sunglasses. An action almost perfectly mirrored by Dean and the dragon warriors, who drew forth green-coloured potions goggles and quickly drew the straps over their own heads, even as the chaotics put on their sunglasses and the violet incandescence blasted forth. As General Malfoy had explained, if Mr. Goyle reported that the Chaos Legion was wearing green-coloured potions goggles, you didn't have to know why to transfigure some copies. That's cheating! shrieked Blaze Zabini. That's technique! Dean yelled back. Dragons, charge! Pardon me? The Lady Greengrass said. Could you stop laughing like that, Mr. Quirrell? It's unnerving. Finite, their goggles! shouted Blaze Zabini as the two armies ran headlong toward each other through omnipresent, eye-searing purple glare. We can still win! You heard him! bellowed Dean. Get their glasses! Blaze Zabini's reply to this wasn't anything articulate. The battle went on a lot longer. Stupefy! shrieked the Sunshine General. Draco didn't dodge. He didn't counter. He didn't have enough energy left for either. All he could do was whip his left hand into position and hope. The red stunbolt dissipated again on Draco's collaportist glove, which he'd transfigured and spell-locked to his hand the same as the rest of Dragon Army. It was all that was saving him now, that shield. It should have been a time to counterattack, but Draco could only catch his breath as the two of them danced backward and forward beneath the trees in the never-ending movements of their duel. Across from him, General Granger was panting hard, the young girl's face glistening with sweat like dew, her chestnut hair wetted into brown plaits. 
Her camouflage uniform was stained with damp spots, her shoulders visibly trembling with exhaustion, but her wand was still steel-steady where it stayed level on Draco through all their motion. Her eyes glaring, her cheeks flushed with rage. So, little girl, why are you pretending to fight like a grown-up today? The taunt came to mind, but he didn't really think he needed Granger any angrier. So instead, Draco just said, though he could hear his own voice cracking, Any reason you're feeling mad at me, Granger? The girl was gasping for breath herself, her own voice wobbling as she spoke. I know what you're up to, said Hermione Granger, her voice rising. I know what you and Snape are up to, Malfoy, and I know who's behind it. Ah, uh, Draco said without even thinking about it. That only seemed to increase Granger's fury, and her fingers whitened on the wand she held leveled on him. And then Draco got it, and it boiled his own blood in his veins. Even she thought he was secretly plotting against her. You too? Draco yelled. I helped you, you buck-toothed bint. You, you, you. Stuttering past all the dark curses that came to mind until he found something he could actually cast at her. Then Swagio! But Granger flashed and whirled around the tooth-lengthening hex, and then her own wand came around and leveled at almost point-blank range, even as Draco brought up his left hand like a shield, placing the magic-locked glove between himself and whatever she was about to fire. And the Sunshine General's own voice rose to a shriek audible across the whole battleground. Hello! Hamora! Time should have paused, but it didn't. Instead, the padlock clicked and fell off the glove. Just like that. Just like that. The screens showed it all very clearly to the entire watching Hogwarts stadium and the bone-dead, silent hush that fell over every bench in every bleacher said that everyone understood quite clearly what it meant. That the scion of House Malfoy had just had his magic overcome by a muggle-born. Hermione Granger didn't pause in her fight, gave no sign that she even knew what she'd done. Instead, her foot snapped out in a muggle-style kick that knocked Draco's wand clean out of his hand, his shocked mind and body moving just a little too slowly. Draco dove after his wand, scrabbling frantically on the ground, but from behind him a girl's cracking voice said, Somnium! And Draco Malfoy fell and didn't rise again. There was another moment of frozen silence. The Sunshine General was wobbling on her feet, looking like she might faint. Then, 
The dragon warriors screamed at the top of their lungs and charged forward to avenge their fallen commander.